0: Hi everyone, I trust that you are well. I know that we're disappointed not to be able to meet in person for the next while, but actually I think this is a blessing today. It's probably going to be easier to hear today's sermon at home, where there are fewer distractions, where you can open up your Bible and notebook and spread yourself out a bit, and where you can pause halfway through for a cup of tea or coffee. Today I'd like us to begin a journey through the book of Revelation. Revelation is a book that I've avoided preaching on or teaching on for my entire ministry as a pastor, which is not something I'm proud to admit and something that I now regret. Through the years, every now and again at Bible study or after a service, someone would say, let's study the book of Revelation, and I always avoided doing so because I didn't feel quite ready. I still don't feel quite ready, but if I were to wait until I felt ready, I'd probably never begin. This is a journey that we're going to take together, and I believe that we will learn and benefit and be built up together as we study this book, or perhaps rather more accurately, as we allow this book to study us. The book of Revelation comes with a wonderful guarantee And a stern warning. As we'll see in a moment, on the very first page of this book we are told, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. This is the only book of the Bible that comes with a guaranteed promise of blessing for those who just read it. But the book also ends with a solemn warning. Chapter 21 and verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from that person their share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. And so I approach this series expectantly, but also reverently, carefully, and prayerfully. I'd appreciate your prayers. And as we are taking this journey together, I would also appreciate your input, your questions, your comments. I want you to know that I'm going to put my very best effort into this series But I do want you to know that this series will not be the final word on the book of Revelation. There are many other preachers and teachers who can guide you further in this book, many of whom I will refer to as we go along. Maybe just to say too that because this book needs careful study, there may be some weeks where I'll need to preach a different sermon on another topic just to give myself a bit more time on a particular passage. And perhaps there may be times where we take an even longer break from the book before coming back to it again. But enough disclaimers and explanations. Let's dive right into God's word to us today. Revelation chapter 1 and verses 1 to 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place, He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power for ever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Just to set your mind at ease, we are not going to go through this book just eight verses at a time. Sometimes we'll deal with a chapter or two, sometimes we'll focus on just a few verses in a wider section, but I think it's important that we enter into this book slowly. These verses are just the introduction to the book, but already John has an important message to convey to us. But in addition to the message, John also gives us some vitally important keys that allow us to correctly interpret The message of this book. So we're going to do two things today. We'll begin by looking at five words that John uses that are keys to interpreting the book of Revelation, and then we'll look briefly at the message of these opening verses. So the keys and the message. Firstly, the keys, and the keys are five words that John uses in these opening verses. Firstly, John tells us that this book is a revelation, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Greek word that is used here is apocalypsis, which is where we get our word apocalypse or apocalyptic from. Now, if you Google the word apocalyptic, you will immediately see pictures of nuclear war and devastated cities and burnt wastelands. Our English word, apocalyptic, according to the Cambridge English Dictionary, means showing or describing the total destruction and end of the world, or extremely bad future events. But the Greek word literally means to uncover. The picture is of opening a curtain to see what is really happening behind the scenes. I remember once being at a theatre production where the curtain rose a little too early and one of the shocked cast members had to scuttle off stage. Or the picture would be of going into a kitchen where there is a pot on the stove, out of which is coming the most wonderful aroma. I might not know exactly what the meal is until I take off the lid and there is an apocalypse, an uncovering. What I had only guessed at is revealed. In one sense, all of scripture is a revelation. Without God revealing himself to us in the Bible, we would only be able to guess at the nature of God and human beings, the nature of sin and salvation. But the book of Revelation in particular is God opening the curtain to allow us to see the realities beyond our earthly experiences. I'll send you the link to this, but if you go to YouTube and search for The Bible Project Apocalyptic, you should find an excellent video by The Bible Project that explains a little more about this kind of writing and how to interpret it. This isn't an endorsement for all The Bible Project's videos, but generally speaking, they're an excellent introduction to the books and some of the themes of the Bible. I'll be sharing another video in a later sermon. As you will see from that short video, the word apocalyptic also refers to a particular type of literature that we find in the Bible, in books like Daniel and Zechariah and Revelation. And one characteristic of that literature is the use of symbols, which is in fact the second word that John uses in these verses as a key to interpretation. Verse 1 again, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. The word show here literally means to signify. You may remember at the end of John's Gospel, Jesus says to Peter, I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. John says, Jesus said this to indicate, to show the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. The word picture that Jesus used there indicated a future reality, it showed something, it signified something. And by using that word here, John is telling us that the things that he will write about later, the word pictures that he will paint, are not to be taken literally, they are not photographs. And to me, this is a great revelation already. What a relief! Think, for example, of the image that we have in chapter 7 of those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. To take that image literally would be both grotesque and nonsensical. How can you make something white by dipping it in blood? But the truth of that image, that the only righteousness that allows us to stand before God is due to the atoning sacrifice of Jesus in which we have put our trust. That truth, which the image portrays, is truly beautiful. I'll speak a little bit more about symbols next time. So the word apocalypse, the word signify. The third key word to interpreting this book is found in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this Prophecy. Now, when we hear the word prophecy, we immediately think of predicting the future. But that, in fact, is not primarily what biblical prophets did. Think of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. What did they do? They declared, "'Thus says the Lord.'" They took God's existing word as it was found in the law, and they applied it to their own time— Sometimes they did speak about future events, but even there it wasn't to satisfy people's curiosity about the future, but to change their behaviour in the present. Eugene Peterson makes this helpful observation in his little book on the book of Revelation. He says there are to be sure references to the past and implications for the future, but the predominant emphasis of the prophetic word is on the now. The prophet says that God is speaking now, not yesterday. God is speaking now, not tomorrow. It's not a past word that can be analysed and then walked away from. It's not a future word that can be fantasised into escapist diversion. It's a personal address now, for the time is near. If we make the prophetic word a predictive word, we are procrastinating, putting distance between ourselves and the application of the word, putting off dealing with it until some future date. The revelation of what must soon take place means precisely soon, as soon as hearts are responsive and ears receptive and eyes perceptive. It is all there before us. God's salvation is complete, ready to be received. So, apocalypse, signify, prophecy... The fourth key word to interpreting the book of Revelation is found in verse 3. It's the word keep. Have a look. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart, literally keep, what is written in it. Let me quote Eugene Peterson again. The word keep doesn't mean keep safe. By putting it in a strong box, it means to keep at it, to keep it in use, to keep it active in everyday life. The scripture stories do not, like other ancient literature, court our favour. They do not flatter us, that they may please and enchant us. They seek to subject us, and if we refuse to be subjected, we are rebels." It is tragically ironic that the very book in the Bible that says this most emphatically has been treated by so many as merely a crossword puzzle. That's why the title for our series is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Read, hear, take to heart. In the weeks that lie ahead, we'll spend a good deal of time looking at what John meant, but each week we will also ask the question, what does this mean to us today, right now? So, apocalypse, signify, prophecy, keep. And then finally, in this section of the sermon, the fifth key, To interpreting the book is found in verse 4, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. The word that is implied here is the word letter. This book is actually a letter and not just any letter, it's a pastoral letter. Just as Paul wrote the book of Galatians to a group of churches to address a particular situation that had arisen there, so John writes this letter to a group of churches to address a particular situation. This is crucial to understanding the book. It must have meant something to the original readers. It cannot be that the majority of this letter describes events in our own time, 2,000 years ahead of its original audience. We'll see in this series that the message of this book has implications and applications to believers of every generation. But its message must have meant something to the original readers, because it was written to instruct and encourage them right where they were. Let me, at this point, briefly sketch the situation in which John is writing, because this is important for the second half of our sermon, where we consider the message of these opening verses. The letter is written by John, one of the twelve disciples and Jesus' best friend. John is on the island of Patmos, one of the Greek islands, which sounds idyllic until you realize it was the Robin Island of the ancient world, a prison island. And John has been exiled there because of his Christian faith. He writes this letter to seven churches in a region of Asia that today we know as Turkey. And we're not 100% sure, but it's probably around the year 95 AD, and Domitian is on the throne of the Roman Empire And a great persecution has begun against the Christian church. Christians had already faced persecution and death under the Emperor Nero after they were blamed for the great fire of Rome. But now the full force of Rome is going to be unleashed against the church throughout the empire. You see, for many years people had appreciated the Pax Romana, the peace that Rome brought to the world. and It wasn't long before the spirit of Rome, or Roma, was thought of as being a god, and it wasn't much longer after that that this god of Rome, this Romana, was seen to be embodied in the emperor. Some emperors resisted being thought of as a god, but many of them delighted in the idea. One of the titles that Domitian claimed for himself was Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. And you can still see the remains of the temple dedicated to Domitian in the city of Ephesus. Rome had conquered people from all sorts of different nations and cultures and religions, and emperor worship was one of the ways of bringing unity and stability to the empire. And so, once a year, as a test of loyalty, all Roman citizens throughout the empire were required to go to the local emperor shrine, burn a pinch of incense, and say the words, Caesar is Lord. And after they'd done that, they would be issued with a certificate to say that they had done so. We still have examples of those certificates today. Now, for most people, this wasn't a problem. When you believe in many gods, adding the emperor to the list wasn't an inconvenience, but Christians couldn't say, Caesar is Lord, because they believed that Jesus is Lord. And so they were persecuted, tortured, and put to death. At various times, Rome tried to wipe Christianity from the face of the earth. Christians' face being thrown to the lions, being placed in animal skins and being torn apart by wild dogs, being chained to wild horses or wild oxen and literally torn limb from limb, they faced being burned to death. How in the world do you face something like that? How do you live your life under that kind of threat? Well, that's what the entire book is about. But here in these opening verses, John gives his readers and us a very important message in this regard. This is the second part of the sermon. We've looked at the keys, and now we're going to look at the message. You might like to pause the recording here and have a cup of tea, or just keep going, because this is the shorter part of the sermon. In these opening verses, John gives us an apocalypse, an uncovering, a fresh revelation of how things really are. None of us today face what John's first readers faced, We're not living under the fear of being burned to death for our faith, but many of us are living under the fear of death itself. Will we get sick? Will we die? Will those we love be taken from us? In addition to that, we have other concerns too, perhaps in our employment, in our finances, in our family, in our relationships, in our church community, in our own personal lives, And even beyond that, perhaps we look at our world and wonder, how is this all going to end? Where is this going? But whatever we face today, John in these verses draws back the curtain and gives us a fresh revelation of who God is, who Jesus is, who we are, and what the future holds. It sounds like a lot, but it's actually a very short yet powerful message for us Let's have a look. Firstly, in times of crisis, we need a fresh revelation of who God is. Verse 8 I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Here, God reveals three things about Himself that we need to bear in mind. Number one, He is the Alpha and the Omega. You will know that those are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. In other words, God says, I am the beginning of everything, and I am the end of everything, and I am also everything in between. I hold everything. Number two, he is the one who is, and who was, and who is to come. This is a longer version of the name that God revealed to Moses, i am who i am yahweh the god who is there and who is eternal and unchanging number three he is the almighty I'm privileged to have a set of Ellis Andre's sermon notes on the book of Revelation. And thanks to Ellis, I know that the term the Almighty is only used 10 times in the New Testament. And nine of those occurrences are here in the book of Revelation. God is the one who can do absolutely anything at all. To use the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, God is the one who is able to do. He is the one who is able to do what we ask. He is able to do more than what we ask. He is able to do more than what we could ask or imagine. He is in fact the one who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. Secondly, in times of crisis, we need a fresh revelation of who Jesus is. Verse 4. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne, most probably referring to the one Holy Spirit, but his sevenfold presence and work among the seven churches, So notice the Trinitarian nature of this greeting. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Again, there are three things that we are told about Jesus. Number one, Jesus is the faithful martyr. That's the Greek word here for witness. And how encouraging then for John's first readers who were facing martyrdom to know that Jesus himself is the faithful martyr. As God the Son, he was a witness to the world of his Father and he paid for his witness with his life. Perhaps you face death today. Perhaps you face persecution for your faith. Perhaps you're being misunderstood or misrepresented, sidelined, falsely accused, abused. Jesus is the faithful martyr who went through all of that on your behalf, for you, in fact, in your place. And he did so perfectly. First Peter chapter 2, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus is the faithful martyr who died for us. Number two, not only is Jesus the God who died, he is the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn meaning most important, the prototype, the model for all those who die in Christ. We remind ourselves in the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And so we can face this week with complete confidence knowing that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans chapter 8. And number 3, Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. At the moment Domitian is on the throne of the Roman Empire, Previously, Nero had been on the throne, and a few years before him, Caligula, who seems to have been a psychopath. There have been other powerful world leaders who've tried to set up a name for themselves, Alexander the Great, Napoleon, Hitler, and others. Perhaps we find that our boss is powerful and mighty. Perhaps our enemies seem huge, but here John draws back the curtain and shows us how things really are. No matter their pretensions or posturing, no matter their claims or their barbaric acts, Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. They don't know it yet, but one day every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. Thirdly, in times of crisis, we need a fresh revelation of who we are. Verse 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power for ever and ever. Amen. Again, there are three things that we need to know about ourselves. Number one, we are loved. To him who loves us. The one who looks into our hearts, who sees to the very bottom, who knows the very worst about us, loves us the most and the most perfectly. Number two, he has proved his love. Christ's love for us does not consist in his giving us what we want. Rather, it consists in his giving us what we most truly need. He has freed us from our sins by his blood. And consider again the greatness of God's love for us. It was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. Romans 5, verse 8. That sin that you committed this past week that is worrying you and making you feel guilty, Jesus knew about that before he went to the cross. In fact, Jesus went to the cross precisely to deal with that sin, to pay that sin's penalty so that you need not. Number three, we need to know our purpose. He has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. Even in a situation of crisis, we continue to mediate God to the world in Philippians chapter 2, Paul speaks about believers becoming blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. But fourthly, in times of crisis, we need a fresh revelation of what the future holds. Verse 7. look. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. This is the main theme of the book. Jesus is coming again. It's so easy for us to get bogged down in all of the detail and the complexity of the book and miss its main message that Jesus is returning. In verse 1 we are told that this will happen soon and in verse 3 that the time is near. And Of course our human tendency is to immediately ask the question, when is soon? John doesn't answer that. Instead he urges us to look, look, he is coming on the clouds. The emphasis is not on the date but on our readiness. Perhaps it would be useful to bear in mind Paul's words in Romans chapter 13, which are true for every generation of believers. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Look, be ready. We need to allow the day to affect today and every day. Well, that's just the first eight verses of this book. Five keys Apocalypse, Signify, Prophecy, Keep, Letter. And four revelations that we can take into this week, no matter what we face. God is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus is the faithful martyr, the firstborn from among the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. I am the one who Jesus loves. He has freed me from my sins by his blood and made me part of a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father. And the future holds seeing Jesus face to face as every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen.